Celsius with the relative humidity 89%. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Paul Zimmerman. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Janice. On today's program, we're looking at support services for poor families in Hong Kong in the wake of a tragedy in which three young girls were killed. Their mother has been arrested and charged with their murder. She had lived with her three daughters aged two, four and five in a small flat in Sham Shui Po, one of Hong Kong's poorest districts. Police say the suspect had marital problems and was estranged from her husband. She was living on welfare and her family was an active case of an integrated family service centre operated by a non-governmental organisation. The tragedy has brought back into the spotlight the issue of whether Hong Kong's underprivileged, especially from ethnic minority groups receive enough support. Can more be done to prevent similar incidents in future? After 9.45, we'll look at the retirement of Hong Kong cycling queen Sarah Lee. Now, uh, to uh, kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line Si Lai Shan, the Deputy Director of the Society for Community Organization. Mike Cheung, Head of the Hong Kong Christian Services Multicultural Rehabilitation and Community Service. And Pooja Kapai, Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Law, who is an advocate of ethnic minority rights. Good morning to you all, and uh, thanks for joining us on the program. Um, Good now, good morning. Now, Miss C, I, I know. Um, hey, good morning. Good yeah. morning. I know Soko has an office in Sham Shui Po on the same street mm. as where the uh, tragedy took place. Um, are you familiar with the families in the building? Uh, it's a pity we, we we don't know the family. Actually, we uh, outreach to the uh, to lock to the every door um, uh, in the building uh, almost every month. Um, but um, some of the households, they always uh, not not at home or not answer to our uh, uh, call. Or um, then we, when we and when we cannot find it, and when we leave the uh, uh, papers, our telephone to them. But uh, since they never call back, and so um, and then some of the neighbors said that they have met met this family, and they seem really normal. And even some of our neighbors, uh, they remind them that if you need any service, you can uh, contact me, see so-called, because uh, we are in the same same building, yeah. All right, so apart from knocking on the doors and leaving your numbers, there's nothing much else uh, you can do? Pardon? Apart from knocking on the doors and leaving your phone number, is there more you can do? Yeah, I think we just go to uh, visit more and more times and then uh, uh, and also remind our neighbors they can remind it. But since this case, they they, they intend not to oppose social workers because uh, government, they have the subsidies uh, service for the uh, uh, family service. So they they had other case, their loan case to the government's uh, uh, family service. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also, they, they, they did not contact them. So, so what, what time of the day uh, do you normally go knock on doors? Is that a night time or is uh, we, it a daytime? Actually, we go to evening. Uh-huh. Uh, we go to this building. Um, most of the time is uh, after 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. Hmm. So uh, uh, normally the people, they should be there. And, yeah. and, and do you and maintain then, some kind we, of a triage system or some kind of alert system for yourself where you look at indicators uh, of people that might be at a higher risk or, or in more need of help? like? Um, mothers, mothers uh, on yeah. the run with little kids. If if if, if we if we know them, we we consider them as uh, uh, need to uh, intensive care uh, 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 
case because the single parent with three children actually normally we uh, take care of three children would be uh, lots of pressure yeah but right. unluckily we, we, we did not uh, have a chance to contact with them mm. yeah all right let's let's go to mr chung mr chung i know yes. um hong kong christian service it, it also has its own outreach teams in uh, the sham Ho area can, can you tell us about uh, your observations of the general situation there um have there been any significant changes over the past few years oh okay um when we talk about the um the ways to help uh to offer support to every minority family facing uh, family issue. First of all, uh, we all have an observation that every minority families face additional challenges when they seek early help or family support. We always talk about language barriers, right? It is true. But experience of discrimination, racial stereotyping, and unconscious bias were sometimes shared by our service user when engaging frontline staff of service units, as well as the general public. They felt they had been treated differently based mm. on their ethnicity. You know, the first point of contact, you mean the first impression of the contact with service is very important in helping profits with ethnic minority. If they got negative first interaction and experience, feeling not being welcome, even we have effective means to provide assistance, their motivation to receive help will be low and solve their problem by their own ways. Um, as a service provider, um, uh, we must pay attention and best use of our first contact with EM service user to build up relationship and trust. And mm. without discrimination or racial stereotyping, especially some EM um, individuals and families are mm. not easy to disclose. I see, Mike. Yeah, yeah. This family was within your service area? I mean, was uh, was this family on your actively being visited or otherwise contacted by your team? Uh, no. Uh, I think it is sometimes when we encounter with our service user, they, uh, they have an experience of uh, uh, discrimination or not being welcomed by a service provider, and that discouraged them to to step more, to take uh, seek more help uh, when they are in need. Okay? So it's very important on, on providing service with, uh, to our service user with ethnic, uh, um, uh, different ethnic background. And another observation is um, the lack of awareness of the source of support was very common uh, problem among the ethnic minority community. Uh, some families did not know who and where to reach out. Uh, to. And when we take a look to the website of Social Welfare Department, uh, it is not now very good to see all the welfare information are in bilingual, right? And even some essential service introduction uh, with different EM language too. But uh, the website is very informative, but the layout is very complicated. It is even hard for a local Chinese to navigate the target information and not to mention uh, ethnic minority. Uh, I know even there is an icon or quick link of information for people oh. of different races, but it is rather small and not eye-catching. Right. So yes, those are yeah, things yeah. that can be, uh, can be improved. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. But as far as your own services are concerned, yeah. what, what are you considering as improvements that you can make to, um, to be more receptive to, and, and, and more sensitive to, the, to people in, in, in risky situations like this lady and her kids? Uh, yes. 
Uh, when we talk about uh, more support service to ethnic minority families, uh, we, we can have uh, suggestions such as uh, organizing uh, um, a parent support group, parent skill workshop, parenting skill workshop, community education, do more promotion uh, on family-related topics, uh, parent-child uh, family relationship activities. But uh, that we have been doing all along with uh, uh, different service provider. But most importantly are whether the service are culturally appropriate uh, with, with respectful of their cultural sure. belief and practice. Um, but we have to further ask whether our local Chinese frontline staff are culturally sensitive enough and understanding the cultural, religious mm. influence on the family dynamic, which okay. can increase. Uh, are they? Are they? Yeah, I yeah. mean, you questioned your your own staff. Are they sensitive not enough, enough? I think not enough. Your staff is not enough for the local uh, frontline staff or petitioner, mm. because uh, if they are uh, culturally sensitive enough, which can increase ethnic minority for seeking help and mm. participation. Right. All right. So let's go to uh, Professor Kapai. Good morning. Good morning. Right. So, uh, um, the family actually involved in the uh, tragedy um, was an active case of an integrated family service center operated by an NGO, as I uh, mentioned in the introduction. But of course, there's uh, nothing to indicate uh, that any intervention could have prevented the tragedy. Um, in general, do you think uh, the underprivileged are getting the support they need? Or, or do you agree with uh, what Mr. Chern was saying that uh, uh, more can be done? I think there are two facets really to think about here, seeing as you frame the conversation as one that impacts poor communities. So generally in Hong Kong, we know that marginalized groups are severely impacted uh, due to uh, resource uh, shortages and especially people who are carers, who perform the role of care in people's homes, they are severely strained. And this is uh, widespread in the general community anyway. But there is very little attention that has been paid to date to ethnic minority carers, whether it's for elderly or uh, young children. So that's the first thing. And the second aspect then is that apart from this general lack of resources, so access to social workers um, or uh, having an effective ecosystem for support, uh, you have the challenges that I, you know, that Mike has mentioned, which I completely agree with. There's an all-round sort of capacity um, and competency uh, issue where they're not able to devise um, a systematic approach to be responsive to ethnic minority communities who are in need. And I think that one of the challenges that many of the programs are reactive or, you know, they happen after the fact. But the other most important thing is that there are very few occasions for making that first encounter. So as Mike said, sometimes you have parental workshops or, you know, whatever it might be. But if you don't use that opportunity to cultivate a trust uh, building kind of a forward-looking relationship that would effectively be the end of kind of your um, pathway to uh, enabling the family to reach out when they need assistance. There are severe trust issues and I mean a study I did about a, a decade ago on domestic violence and help-seeking responses within the ethnic minority community reveals all of the facets that Mike has highlighted. There's a lack of trust, there's a lack of cultural awareness and understanding and it doesn't just go to whether we are familiar with um, the value systems or the religious values you can't uh, express those in a couple of counseling sessions. You have to have a fuller and more intimate understanding of the world that these women are a part of. And many of them don't have access to external friendships or support circles. So there really needs to be much more done on a systematic level to see that the women are able to approach uh, neighbors and their community. They have friends outside of the family network because 
there are ties that bind them so deeply that if they forsake their family, they really feel completely abandoned. So how can a one-off uh, you know, encounter with a government uh, service provider or an NGO replace that connection or bond with family? So these women are really, really isolated and something more systematic needs to be in place. Are there success stories in Hong Kong of, uh, of those networks that you suggest? I think there are a couple of uh, burgeoning initiatives where there are these attempts being made, but I think that you know even those uh, NGOs that are uh, attempting to, to have more longer-lasting connections with families, they're so severely under-resourced, and they don't have the professional capacity to deliver on all aspects. I mean, if you look at some other jurisdictions, for example, um, I studied Australia and the UK, they very much moved to a one-stop shop model. So if you happen to be delivering a particular service and it comes up in the course of that service delivery that this family has the, you know, uh, issues relating to domestic violence or poverty or education, they would be able to source the relevant people from within their own organization to provide that kind of support on spot. We but, do not have any such service in Hong Kong. And I think that is probably one of the, um, the, the most critical sort of uh, delivery mechanisms that actually has been proven to work overseas. And that's just a historical issue, isn't it? I mean, Hong Kong has always been very dependent on private enterprise and uh, private charities to kind of provide help for all, all manner and sorts in, in, in the city for since, uh, since the beginning of the last century, I think. Um, and the, the, the government has always washed its hand a little bit of that. Uh, is that is is changing is, or do you see an opportunity for change? I do see an opportunity for change, but I don't think it's changing nearly quickly enough because there's a problem with the narrative. The narrative in Hong Kong's kind of charity culture is that, you know, we're doing this out of benevolence. We're, you know, we're missionaries or we're saving you from your family. We're saving you from your oppressive culture and religion. I think that narrative carries a lot of baggage mm -hmm. for anybody who wants to, you know, reach out and, and just sort of um, protect themselves or, or feel self-respected. Uh, and so I think that there is intertwined and sort of reaching out to Hong Kong services, this notion that you're somehow betraying your own, right? So, and, and the fact that most of the NGOs in Hong Kong are subvented by um, religious uh, denominations. So I think there are a lot of um, deep-rooted issues that are historical that make many communities reluctant to reach out. Okay. All right, let, let's go back to Miss C. Miss C? Hey, hello. Hi. So, um, so we just heard from uh, Mr. Cheng earlier. He's talking about how uh, he he believes in his uh, organization, some local Chinese uh, frontline staff. They're not culturally sensitive enough. And uh, just now, Professor Kapai, she she talked about uh, different problems such as a lack of uh, trust and a cultural understanding. And what, what are some of the difficulties you have encountered uh, with your team uh, when you when you try to offer um, help to to uh, some of these families? I think, uh I think if um, if you approach an EM, um, if they will be more trust if you have an EM worker. Mm -hmm. uh, I think not only because you can communicate with them or not, it's a deeply culture. They will just say you are you are their people. Uh, so this is uh, 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 one point. So I think if there's an EM team, if um, they they should have an EM worker to do that. Uh, because our center is not an EM team, so we did not have, and then about, actually in our building there, uh, I think maybe less than 10 households, but the whole building is around, uh, nearly around nearly a 90 household of subdivided actually. So 
more yeah, of so, them, so, their local people. So SOCO is one of the most important uh, caregiving kind of uh, organizations in, in, mm. in this part of Hong Kong where the, the mm. family lived and, and you do not have an EM team. I mean, is, is that... We don't, we don't have. We, we are a very small organization, actually. We only have uh, 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 two workers in the center and then we have other centers not in this building and we are not sub uh, 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 government uh, uh, team. So we are just uh, a, a by some uh, private foundation or communities uh, committee. But actually, we, we do m many, many outreaching. So I, I still really regret uh, we, we oppose the above uh, household. Actually, almost every household loan us, but uh -huh. only a few of them, they uh, they not at home and then so that they call it and, and, and so, so, I think so we cannot oppose them. What about but, Mr. But, Chang? Um, Mr. Yeah. Chang, what, yes. about, what about your organization? Do you have any um, ethnic minorities uh, members on your team? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, actually, there are 20, around 22 registered social workers from ethnic minority uh, background in Hong Kong. And, uh, in Hong Kong? In Hong Kong, 22 yes. for the whole of Hong around, Kong? Around 22, yes. RSW uh, from uh, ethnic minority background in Hong Kong, yes. And very luckily, we have uh, free, and it is a blessed to us to hire free uh, social worker from ethnic minority background. And you know, uh, uh, the you know, this is a supply and demand issue. The, the, the demand is, uh, exceed, uh, is likely to exceed the supply, right? And uh, since the number of social workers from ethnic minority background is very limited, uh, but in order to uh, better reach out to the ethnic minority community and provide culture at uh, appropriate surveys, we, our service unit will hire a certain proportion of ethnic minority individuals for social uh, for service delivery, uh, they will work closely uh, with our Chinese social worker mm -hmm. and a partner. It, they are a partnership uh, uh, to provide outreach surveys, contact service recipient, establish relationship, and bridge and uh, escort service user to the mainstream surveys. And they become our cultural guides also. You know, they they sure. teach us, they share us uh, more about the um, the uh, culture of their EM community, mm. which which enhance our capability to serve the EM community. Sure. Right, but but yeah. they're not they're not um, trained uh, social workers. Um, do you think there's a need for more um, trained social workers who are who are from an ethnic minority background? You you, you mean to have more uh, young people? To, to be to join the social worker uh, yes. uh, in a field, right? Well, yes. young, young or old, I mean, ages yeah, yeah, does yeah, it's the ethnic minority background. Yeah, very <laughs> agree. Um, but um, uh, but I, I I think we can uh, we should consider two aspects on this. The first is in terms of education. That means uh, have we provide enough ways for young people or the for mm. the people with ethnic minority background to study social work training course. Are there any barriers or hurdles in admission and requirement or medium of instruction even that make it difficult for them to pursue social work field? This is uh, the education background uh, aspect. And in terms of employment, um, do NGOs have sufficient support to hire individuals from different cultural backgrounds? For example, uh, uh, do the NGOs have a cultural friendly work environment? Are colleagues culturally sensitive to work with individuals from different cultural backgrounds? Can the organization, a policy document, internal and external communication, and even higher procedure 
recruitment procedure be provide and ready in both Chinese and English language, as most of the agency request social worker uh, to have fluent in listening, speaking, mm. even writing and reading Chinese, that will be quite discouraging. Yes, yeah, it's, it's very important. Social worker, right? <laughs> yes, of course. Now, I understand. So, Mike, uh, you don't have many people on the ground in Shamshipo area. Xi uh, Lai-san doesn't have a lot of people on the ground in Shamshipo area. Who has in this? in this area where, you know, there's a lot of ethnic minorities living there and, and working there. There are EM, EM service in some shape or sponsored by government. Yes, yes. Yeah. yes. Actually, uh, when, when you uh, take a look to the uh, development of social service of ethnic minority over the past decade, there are lots of NGO providing service to ethnic minority nowadays. And the, uh, our agency, with a um, our change um, team for ethnic minority, which supplemented by the social welfare department, and we um, and we provide outreaching service to um, uh, reaching out to the uh, EM community, and and we also join hand and network with the local community as well as the EM com- organization or the uh, religious organization to connect with uh, uh, individual with uh, from multicultural background. And we also have to provide um, uh, uh, short-term uh, intervention and case support service hmm. to, to the uh, needy of uh, ethnic minority. So, yeah. so you think there is think enough resources? Time, yeah. I think at the same time, the government need to uh, have more language support for the EM because uh, um, um, their children, they, many of them, they will know Chinese but, but not many of them they can promote to higher education level because the language, uh, the Chinese level. So they should have more support for this so they can, and even the adult, they can develop more in uh, Chinese so they were easier to communicate with other people and they can have more uh, support to them uh, to, to know the um, community resources or their Hong Kong culture. Because I think uh, um, every time we know and we know them, actually we we are also uh, many uh, some some of the kind they are EM. They uh, when once we oppose them, introduce them, we we find they actually know uh, know really few uh, community resources. Um, so um, more uh, once we oppose them, they were willing to 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 know more. So I think the government they need to uh, also have this more more support for them, and then also encourage them to speak out. Uh, I think because of the culture, especially for the um, family problem, and I think not only EM, because when we oppose um, uh, uh, migrants or uh, other low uh, uh, grassroots people, um, I think family problems uh, or the love affairs is or and when talk about the custody of the children, the, um, they are always have uh, their own thoughts, and you need to uh, go to really deep. Uh, in depth to talk with them mm-hmm. and then uh, lobby them how to be uh, fair to children and treat it better way positive this kind of thing. Mm. So right. um, and they need, you need to get uh, uh, build up a really good relationship. Sure. Otherwise, they will not willing to talk about this. Right. Yeah. And, and Mr. Chung, what about yeah. uh, the role of uh, district care teams now? The uh, the chief executive uh, John Lee he said yesterday that uh, they they can provide assistance as soon as possible. Um, what kind of assistance would you like to see from uh, district care teams? 
Uh, the, the caring team, right? Yeah. I, I think the caring team should join hand with uh, um, the outreaching team of, for ethnic minority because uh, they are also under the funding of the government. And we, we, we can join hand to provide more um, um, uh, um, uh, cultural appropriate service to our service users. They, they can, because they have manpower, right? We can, we can mobilize the manpower to to engage and reach out to uh, need, those needy. But what we have to do is to provide cultural sensitivity to those who are going to uh, offer help. You know, if, if they cannot uh, understanding the cultural uh, religious influence on, on their um, daily life, they can't build up relationship and trust relationship with, with uh, the others. Okay. And also, I, I, I also agree with Silei San that uh, we, we have to remove the bar- uh, language barrier for assessing the, uh, the surface of all right, uh, all right, Mr. Chung, I'm afraid I have to stop you there because uh, we need to take a short break for the news. Um, thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Mike Chung, the head of the Hong Kong Christian Services Multicultural Rehabilitation and Community Service. Many thanks also to Sila San, the Deputy Director of the Society for Community Organization. And uh, Professor Kapai will uh, continue our discussion after the news when we will be joined by Sandy Chan, Operations Director of the Zubin Foundation. Now, if you want to share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page Backchat on RTHK Radio 3 Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266 And uh, here's a quick look at the weather, mainly cloudy with showers and squally thunderstorms. The top temperature will be around 31 degrees. And uh, right now it's 29 degrees, relative humidity 89%. <music> It's now 9.30. With a new summary, here's Andrew Shirovsky. A 29-year-old woman is appearing in Kowloon City Court this morning charged with the murder of her three young daughters. The bodies of the three girls, aged 2, 4, and 5, were found in their Shemshuipo flat on Monday. A member of a think tank has labeled as absurd a proposal to use farmland in Shengshui for housing. Rural body, the Hongyi Kuk, said it would be better to build 12,000 public flats on the site instead of taking back nine hectares from the Hong Kong Golf Club in Fanling. And a new food distribution initiative has been launched to hand out some 900,000 meals to elderly people over the next three years in an effort to help them feel less isolated. The Hearty Meal Express initiative, a partnership between Food Angel and the Hong Kong Bank Foundation, will distribute the meals via automated food dispensers. We'll have more on these and other stories at 10 o'clock. When ordering an LPG cylinder, do you know how to select an LPG cylinder distributor? LPG cylinder distributors that meet safety performance requirements are now rated and categorized into three levels, gold, silver, and bronze. With the rating system, buying an LPG cylinder is safe and easy. For details, please visit the Electrical and Mechanical Services Department website at www.emsd.gov.hk. Let's swim! Wait, do you know the three rules of swimming pool hygiene? Yes. First, don't swim if you're sick. Right. Don't swim if you have an infectious disease, fever, cold, or stomach ache. Second, keep the water clean. Never vomit, urinate, or defecate in the pool. If you feel sick, use the toilet. Third, ensure good personal hygiene. Wash your body thoroughly before and after swimming. Keep the pool clean for comfortable and safe swimming. 
Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Paul Zimmerman and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is Pooja Kapai, Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Law. And uh, also joining us now is Sandy Chan, Operations Director of the Zubin Foundation. Good morning, Ms. Chan. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, now, before the news, we, we heard about uh, some of the difficulties experienced by uh, NGOs in reaching out to families in need, including uh, ethnic minority ones, um, for, for example, uh, language barriers. Um, what's Zubin Foundation's experience? Um, it's actually, I agree with a lot of the NGOs that it's very difficult. Um, at the Zubin Foundation, I would say that we are in a better situation because um, we have majority of our staff being ethnic minorities. So they speak with, um, they speak in the same language with a lot of our service users. And that actually at the better starting point that at least they can communicate. Um, and also they understand a lot of the culture um, barriers that our service users are facing as well. So that's the situation. But um, looking at the other NGOs in a broader perspective, I would say um, uh, in general in Hong Kong, uh, providing service to ethnic minority individuals, it would in fact be a part of a situation that if somebody who can understand their culture a lot more and I mean um, language yes that would be good helpful um, but I mean th- th- there could always be also the translation services mm-hmm. as well. So Cindy are you active in Shamsi Paul? Um, we have programs in Yaochimau more. Um, we are not that, um, we don't have that many programs in um, Sam Shepo, but there are service users from Sam Shepo. And, and so are you uh, developing your relationships with the various organizations that are active there? Yes, um, we have in fact um, had different meetings, in fact in late March, um, with different NGOs in Hong Kong who's working um, on the issues facing by ethnic minorities and in particular focusing on the mental health issue. Uh-huh. And, and what recommendations have you made to government? So there are a couple of issues raised in that um, discussion, including that we need a very um, we need a clearer map about the services provided by different NGOs. Um, at this moment, it seems like people often feeling that you know I don't know where to go, and even within NGO workers, um, people do not know if this that's within their 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 power to you know handle the issue, or they should pass on to an other NGOs. So often we've heard from our service users too that um, they come to one NGO A and then the other day they were being transferred to NGO B and then being transferred to NGO C. So for them it's very confusing because a lot of them would already need help in accessing the uh, system, uh, support system or welfare system already and without knowing why they're being keep transferred mm. uh, from one NGO to another NGO, so that's really confusing. So it would be very helpful if the government could help provide or even um, we were talking about like among NGOs, we could also like have um, um, a clearer sort of directory type of map like who's doing what okay. and um, 
building a closer bonding with each other. So then at the very least, we know if, okay, this is the case, then we know who to refer that case to for a better support and a better help. And that case would not be even transferred further and further and further after. Pooja, I'm confused now uh, uh, by uh, what has been told before the news and, and after this news uh, in, in the sense that uh, it's very clear that it's a confusing situation. There's a lot of um, organizations involved here and everybody is basically telling the same story here. We have a uh, somewhat chaotic environment in terms of support services for the ethnic minorities or for in general in social services um, that comes that comes in line with your earlier request for that there is one stop needed yeah i think that uh, you know it's it's important to recognize that um, just as any victims of any uh, <clears throat> shortcoming or disadvantage would not want to go around and share their story, their background repeatedly, which is generally what tends to be required. You have to think of it in the same way. If a minority woman is reaching out and you re-refer her uh, out to some other organization that she's not familiar with, chances are there's going to be a high rate of attrition. And that's exactly what we've observed. And we, you know, why... Why do we maintain such a system when we know that the referral process is going to lead to people sort of dropping out, right? Hmm. And in terms of counseling as well, I mean, this is at the very heart of it. When you're dealing with mental health issues, there has to be consistent, longer-term support and trust. You cannot build that. I understand the constraints. I understand why we have this mechanism where we refer out, because there are just not enough resources or people at a particular organization. But that's where we need to build our strength, that people understand when they go to one place, they can just go to that place, and then the services come to them. And so there is no. So what are you suggesting how to do that, and, and how do you deal with like issues like privacy and, and because sharing of data on patients or on people that need support? There, is, there are probably constraints there. There are constraints there, but you can develop policies and protocols to, to work around those constraints. I mean, it's just like having a multidisciplinary, uh, you know, uh, committee that is set up in, in the aftermath of any kind of tragedy that we have uh, in relation to children or other kind of homicides. You have a protocol and you have people who are drawn in and sit together in one room and then think through what's the best response for the family concerned, what are the services we need to pull in, and how do we direct and deliver them? How do we time it all? So I think that we have some of the blueprints in place. We're just not actioning them towards this particular issue because these issues are hidden and invisible to us because we're still very overwhelmed dealing with the general population. And, and that's one of the biggest challenges here. You have a community which has very unique needs. We're severely under-resourced because of our education system. There isn't a through a pipeline through which our own community members are able to rise up to these positions. And even when they do, there's pay disparity or there's, you know, unequal treatment in these organizations because, of course, ethnic minority registered social workers, if they don't speak Cantonese as effectively, they're seen not to be servicing the rest of the community. And so they're drawing more resources than the organization can afford. So these are really problematic challenges that have to be overcome uh, before you can even begin to talk about more, you know, um, directed and targeted uh, servicing, which is of a one-stop shop nature. Oh, okay. But I think ethnic minorities need to be seen as specialists and deliver the services, as Sandy's saying, in their own language. You already crossed that barrier mm. of trust 
in the first meeting. So where, 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 so where can this go then, uh, this emergency response to this situation? I mean, this situation that we have just encountered warrants an emergency response on the side of government. Uh, reading all the comments we've had this morning from all of you, um, that, that we have a chaotic situation. So is, is government going to set up a structure to kind of address this? I haven't read or heard anything uh, along those lines, but absolutely, I think it's absolutely essential. And in fact, a few years ago, uh, the Zubin Foundation and I had, um, you know, done this piece of research, and we made a whole list of recommendations. Out of one, of, uh, one of which was that the government should establish a high-level committee, which was yeah. set up in 2016 or 2017. It was a steering committee on ethnic minority affairs in Hong Kong. Now, what has happened to that committee? I'm not sure. It was uh, chaired by the former Chief Secretary, Mr. Matthew Chung, but this was really an opportunity to be able to have this bird's eye view of all of the challenges uh, facing the uh, community and then to uh, communicate with the various bureau heads and channel resources to anticipate exactly these types of issues. Right? There was also a LECHCO uh, subcommittee set up to examine issues faced by ethnic minorities in Hong Kong. There was a long, year-long sort of series of um, hearings where people made various deputations on education, violence, the whole gamut, employment, poverty. So there are recommendations out there. There, there are actionable items that the government needs to work on. But these have just withered away and we have no idea what the follow-up is on, on any of these issues. And a tragedy like this should really kick us into action. We shouldn't need a tragedy like this before we do something. Hmm. All right. But the, the Chief Executive, John Lee, he did say uh, the uh, departments will work together to, to come up with a plan. And uh, they also mentioned uh, uh, the uh, district uh, care uh, teams that they would be uh, assisting as well. I mean, is that enough? I mean, it's not clear they yet, but they're starting. The, they don't they don't have the capacity, they don't have the, uh, the know-how, right? They don't have the expertise required in order to deliver. I mean, you take out of the 22 registered social workers, how many of them are mental health specialists, for example? Who do you take along with you? And the, the community is so widespread across Hong Kong, and there are only three ethnic minority outreach teams. So even if you work together with the district care teams, what are they taking with them? And how responsive would they be to such an emergency? Right. And That's uh, the question we have to ask. And other than yourself and Sandy's, the, the, the Zubin Foundation, I mean, who were on this committee with, uh, with Matthew Chung at the time? No, we were not um, on the committee. I think that committee that Pooja mentioned is, in fact, um, uh, uh, committee representatives only from the government um, bureau heads, not really have outsiders like oh, like Pooja or the so other there was, NGOs. So there was no advice from from people that uh, that work with ethnic minorities. Um, no. I also want to comment on that um, community care team or the district care team. Um, I think there needs to be more information if they are having um, focus on um, ethnic minorities. Because at this moment, we don't even know if they would be able to hire people uh, from the, com I mean, from the ethnic minority community to serve the ethnic minority communities. As you rightly mentioned at the beginning, language is the issue and a lot of the um our um, counseling clients reach out to us the very first thing they ask us if we can speak their language um, during the counseling process so it's important that um, the um, any staff who's going to be joining any like you know outreaching services they need to speak the language that's one thing the other thing is as Pooja mentioned as well that it needs to be trained so they need to be provided sufficient training so that they at least know the topic and know where to 
um, seek support um, from the community resources. So all these needs to be planned very carefully. Um, yeah. Right. And Ms. Chan, you were talking earlier about uh, Zubin Foundation, how many of your staff um, are, are from an uh, ethnic minority background. Um, are, they, are they all social workers? Um, no, um, we have one social worker, but what we also have are counsellors um, who are South Asian um, origin and they can speak the language and understand the culture. So that's why um, what we have a big program here um, at the Student Foundation is our counselling program. We provide free one-to-one um, counselling um, for the um, for our clients for free. And um, the majority of the issues, in fact, are uh, family conflict related. Mm. And um, from the data that we have of um, last year, we have over 85% of the um, uh, uh, clients who are female and over 55% of them are age 30 or below. Um, And what what we also found is from 80% of the um, um, service users, they are actually um, having severe or extremely severe um, depression, anxiety, and the um, stress scale from a research that we've um, conducted in partnership with um, the University of Hong Kong. All right. The, the question, uh, the, the reason why I'm asking is uh, because uh, some of our guests earlier, they um, they shared a view that uh, there should be more social workers with an ethnic minority background, but uh, it's uh, difficult for them to uh, um, be qualified. Do you also uh, share that uh, concern as well? I mean, is it really difficult for um, ethnic minority people to uh, get a qualification in social social uh, work? Um, I would say yes. Um, in fact, not only about social work, but other professional, you know, um, streams as well. Um, but focusing on social work, um, there's often requirement on, you know, speak through Cantonese and uh, think about, you know, can they communicate with local communities? Um, there are universities who would accept um, and institutes, education institutes, who would accept um, ethnic minorities who do not know um, Cantonese. So, um, in fact, what I would recommend more is that, um, if possible, in fact, this is really, really needed in Hong Kong, um, uh, the ethnic minority social workers. So, um, give them more opportunities so then, at the very least, they could come up to, to serve Hong Kong as a whole. Hmm. So, Pooja, I remember the, the, uh, there were these discussions involving various organizations uh, with, uh, that were looking at ethnic minorities, and that's several years ago, and you were part of that. Are, are you going to try to reconvene that discussion and, and in, in response to this, uh, this, this uh, situation that we have now faced with this, this is a poor lady and her three kids? Are, are you going to take some action trying to kind of push government again to take all these revive those recommendations at the uh, that you made at the time uh, absolutely i think that this has been a long time coming especially in the aftermath of covid we saw various needs uh, that uh, you know uh, emerged once again and these are long standing issues so there absolutely has to be a systematic response and i think that the time is very much well we've, we've gone past the time uh, so I think convening 
the communities that work with ethnic minority groups and uh, really putting our voices together to urge the chief executive and his team to, to put these issues back on the agenda and what they're going to do about it. I think that really has to be the next step. Okay, great. All right, so Professor Kapai, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Pooja Kapai, Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Law, who is also an advocate of ethnic minority rights. Many thanks also to Sandy Chan, Operations Director of the Subin Foundation. It's now 9.48, and uh, in a moment, we'll look at the retirement of Hong Kong cycling queen, Sarah Lee. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hello, audience of RTHK. I'm Paul Chen, the Financial Secretary. This year marks the 95th anniversary of RTHK. I wish RTHK every success in starting a new chapter for public service broadcasting. 95 years of public service broadcasting. 95 years. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. With Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88266 and have your say. Star cyclist and Olympic medalist Sarah Lee announced on Monday that she's officially retiring from the sport and plans to take up a coaching role in the future. The 36-year-old thanked Hong Kongers for their support, saying she will not stop being a good person and hopes to continue to help the city. To uh, comment on this, we're now joined on the line by Cheng King Leung, chairman of the Hong Kong Elite Sports Committee. Good morning, Mr. Cheng. Good morning, Janice and Paul. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, can you first put into context uh, what Sarah Lee's legacy is as a cyclist and uh, as a Hong Kong athlete? Well, I think uh, Sarah's uh, achievement is extraordinary in uh, Hong Kong sport history. Um, her, perform- her performance is always very promising in various, um, you know, starting from 2010, the Asian Games in Guangzhou, to get her gold medals and afterward every asian games and olympic games uh she always bring a medal for hong kong people and her spirit is regarded as the um spirit of hong kong why because uh sarah was grown up at a lower income family uh out of Kong estate i think we all remember because uh, uh she is regarded as the goddess cyclist for the cow, uh, uh, through her hard work and her fighting spirit, her, her strong sense of responsibility and positive, positive attitude in pursuing uh, excellency, and she gained her success in international sport arenas and give a lot of pride to Hong Kong people. Mm. So we have uh, in the past also Lee Lai San uh, and uh, in uh, windsurfing, Edgar Chung in fencing. Yeah. But I'm always impressed with Sarah that in cycling, because there are so few people cycling in Hong Kong. How did she get on top of the world uh, and, and with cycling? How did she practice? Where did she learn? Yeah, you're right. It's not easy to, to have a top cyclist in Hong Kong, as you can see that actually... Um, and in terms of the uh, participants, in terms of the population which engage in uh, cycling sport, uh, we don't have a huge population. It's not very common sport in, in, in Hong Kong, I can regard it. Um, but through the tough training by the uh, 
Sport Institute, uh, by our unit training program, and proves their commitment in in the sport to overcomes all the difficulties and make her success in the international arenas. That make her a legend. That make her a legend in Hong Kong sport history. I think. Mm. I think nowadays through the scientific uh, scientific uh, training method, it is possible to train elite athletes for uh, different sport items. But the matter is the talent and the perseverance, the attitude of the athlete is more important than the than the scientific training method, I think. <laughs> so the esteem of, of herself is really important. And she showed that. So really outstanding. Hmm. All right. So like you said, Mr. Cheng, it's not easy to have a top cyclist in Hong Kong. So how big of an impact will her retirement have on uh, sports development in, in general in Hong Kong and, uh, of, of course, uh, in cycling? Um, I myself uh, strongly support and respect her decision to retire and absolutely support her transfer to coaching. Um, I will regard it, I will uh, look at it in a good way as uh, her experience is really important because we seldom have uh, have a uh, Olympic medalist as the coach. Uh, I think uh, as a Olympic medalist, she has certain kinds of experience and ability which can help our younger generation to cope with the psychological condition in high-level competition, which is a very invaluable access of Hong Kong sport industry, I think. Uh, so, so she's going so to join... I strongly support her to, to, to be a unique mm. uh, coach for Hong Kong people. <laughs> Fantastic. So she, she's confirmed to join and, and coach. Uh, who's next uh, coming up in your sports leads program? I mean, uh, in which sports are, we, are you seeing potentially uh, the future uh, winners out there for our Hong Kong? Well, uh, are you referring to the cycling sport? No, I mean, referring because to, I, I mean, you, you're looking at all the different sports, is it? You're just looking at, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so just in all sports. Where is our well, next winner? I think from the past uh, Olympic game in Tokyo, you can you uh, we all can see that um, our elite sport program is really very successful in Hong Kong uh, in terms of the population and the resources that we own. We achieve a very outstanding, remarkable result in the Tokyo Olympic. Mm-hmm. I think this momentum will be moved on to. Uh, next year, Paris Olympic Games. And I, I don't want to give a further burden for our elite athletes. But I can tell you that uh, from, from the truth is, uh, you, you, you know that fencing, uh, table tennis, um, like uh, uh, swimming, swimming, yeah. uh, swimming, I think, I hope maybe in the Paris o- Olympic, we, we can have a, a gold medal even. Okay. Um, but, what but, about for cycling? Um, Who's going to be the next Sara Lee? In cycling, and, and it's also in a, a, a good hope. Uh, and recently, you see uh, Lee Si Wing, uh-huh. a very young cyclist, also get a very uh, fantastic result in, 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 in the international competition. Okay. But uh, I just want to tell you an untold story about Sarah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can I have a sure. minute? Of course, <laughs> of course. Because... Um, Sarah 
Sarah, you know, um, she's not always uh, smooth in her uh, spotlight. Um, it, so is uh, it not, hasn't always been, been easy for her, you mean? Yeah, not really easy for her. Yeah. Uh, we all remember that in, in 2016 Rio Olympic. Hmm. At that time, is he is she is a high hope for the uh, gold medal, yeah. but uh, luckily, uh, due to an incident, she lost the medal. Yeah. Uh, we can regard it as a defeat in, uh, for her uh, for her uh, spotlight. Mm-hmm. Okay, but after the, her defeat, she is not worrying about herself. She's worrying about the development of the sport, cycling. So she worry about not enough youngster or young athletes know about the sport and participate in the sport. Um, you, we all know that without a wide population of participants to serve as the, as the base, it is quite difficult to find talent for elite training. So she wants to promote cycling in Hong Kong school sports. She goes to the Hong Kong School Sports Association in person to convince the association to include cycling as a school sport. From this point, we can see that uh, this cyclist, Sarah, is not only concerned about her own achievement or mm. own, her own work, but she really cares about the development of the sport. She urged uh, the School Sports Association to include cycling as a school sport. Okay. The reason is to widen the population, make it popular, to make sure cycling can keep on, okay. can move on, to Is have she... more participants and she succeeded? to join into the game. Yeah. Is she, she was successful? It is, it's now included in the school yeah, sport? Yeah, I can say that. Yeah. Through her hard work, uh, actually, we are step-by-step promoting the uh, cycling sport in uh, in all Hong Kong school sport arenas. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So does that also mean that uh, we'll have to kind of work on the transport department to make sure that cycling is safer along our roads? I mean, in terms of cycling lanes and cycling tracks where people can practice? Well, of course, if uh, there is some arrangement which can make our um, um, athletes have a better pace for training, uh, I think we all welcome that, but I think I don't think it's an easy issue. That's why most of the uh, elite sport training they are carrying uh, overseas or in the mainland China. That is the reason, and this is also uh, a reason that uh, most of the cyclists they have to sacrifice a lot. They uh-huh. have to be separate with their family, with their friends, and uh, living with a very boring. <laughs> I, I mean, well, the, the environment is very boring, but, not their life. Their, but then their school, life is uh, sure, but sure, school, everyday training is very, very hard work. special, very the, challenging. I know, but if you say school sport cycling, does that mean that we're going to see more kids uh, around with bicycles and uh, at schools? I mean, where are they going to be? I'm no. just a bit worried that they're going to be on the road and uh, and the road is not designed for it. So uh, so where are the kids on with their you, bicycles? You know, the situation in Hong Kong, we, we don't have much road and uh space for the development, but uh, we still try to tackle uh, these barriers. We try to promote the indoor cycling, uh-huh. indoor cycling, and then put, a, put the student to the stadium, to the cycling stadium for training after they have certain amount of uh, training indoor and then bring them outdoor. And even some of the talented elite athletes can join the 
uh, youth program to train overseas or train in uh, some special arena. All right, Mr. Chen, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Chen King Leung, Chairman of the Hong Kong Elite Sports Committee. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and to our guest presenter, Paul Zimmerman and producer Raphael. I'll be back with another edition of Back Chat with uh, Philip Wong tomorrow.